thank you very much for joining the CSENT podcast. Our aim in this is to share information on current topical issues related to the CSENT Center's three core pillars of financial stability and payment systems, macroeconomics and monetary policy management, and leadership and governance. The CSEN Center is a thought leader for central banks and monetary authorities in the Southeast Asia and Pacific region. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and other major podcast apps. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSEN Center, on LinkedIn as the CSEN Center, also on YouTube just by searching for the CSEN Center. If you have any comments or any questions of our podcast, you can also reach us at podcast at csent.org. Again, podcast at csent.org. Today I'm joined by my director, Mr. Glenn Tasky, who will introduce himself shortly, and our guest, Professor Douglas Arner. My name is Mark McKenzie. I'm a senior financial sector specialist within the Financial Stability and Supervision Unit at the CSEN Center. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, my name is Glenn Tasky, and uh, I'm the director of uh, the programs at CSEN concerning financial stability, financial supervision, and payments. Uh, I've been at CSEN since April of 17, and uh, one of the key areas that we've been focusing on for the last two or three years uh, is the topic of uh, technological change in banking, uh, financial services, financial inclusion, and the essentially truly revolutionary uh, developments that have taken place uh, over the last 10 years. And uh, there's probably no better person that we can think of to address uh, some of these developments uh, than uh, Professor Douglas Arner, who's with us today. Uh, Professor Arner is the Carey Holdings Professor in Law and the co-founder of the Asian Institute of International Financial Law of the Faculty of Law uh, at the University of Hong Kong. Um, and so, Doug, uh, I just want to give you a minute or two to kind of introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, talk about a little bit how you got uh, into this whole area of technological change in financial services, fintech, financial inclusion, and the like, and then we'll follow it up with a series of questions. Thanks, Glenn, and thanks, uh, Mark and, and Glenn. It's great to be back here at, at CSEN, uh, and always great to, to talk to, to you all. And I think if I look at this topic, certainly over the past four or five years, uh, my, my friends Dirk Zetsche at the University of Luxembourg, Ross Buckley at UNSW in Australia, and I have pretty much been spending all of our time on the interaction between finance, technology, and regulation. Uh, and for me, this is really a long-term interest. I've been working uh, in the area of financial market development, financial stability, uh, for about 25 years now, and a heavy focus looking at the role of finance in a, an economy, both from a positive standpoint in supporting wider growth and development, as well as from a negative standpoint, thinking about risks and consequences of financial crises, and how we can use regulation and the design of institutional structures to increase the likelihood of positive outcomes uh, and reduce the likelihood of negative outcomes. And I think from the standpoint of what we're seeing over the past 10 years in particular, in technology, we're really seeing some revolutionary changes from the standpoint of the positive side, but also some big new risks from the standpoint of the negative side. Okay, very good, Doug. Um, and, you know, all of us as users of technology to a certain extent, users of uh, the internet, uh, new modes of communication, uh, we're all aware of uh, the the firms which are starting, you know, to dominate many aspects of our lives, you know, the merger of 
commerce, with technology, with uh, uh, financial services and other uh, aspects. Um, and uh, there's been a great deal of discussion of, of big tech. And by big tech, we're meeting, you know, the, the gigantic companies, you know, that we interact with every day. We talk about Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, in Asia, Ant Financial, Tencent, and so forth. What is your overall view of the contributions that big tech uh, can make uh, to financial services in general, but particularly financial inclusion. Hmm. Um, we have a great many people uh, who are uh, not served or underserved by financial services currently. About 1.7 billion hmm. people, I believe it is. Yeah, exactly, Mark. Um, do you think that the big techs have a role to play uh, in financial in inclusion? Do you think that they'll be a, ever be willing to work with the marginalized segments of society? Will it be profitable for them? Or is it going to be something that is really just for the wealthier segments of society? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because uh, the role of technology in our societies generally uh, has been evolving at a, a very rapid rate. And I, I think increasingly we're at a point where the technology is no, not so much the barrier, but a question of what we want to do with that technology. So if I think about the financial sector, I can think about uh, technological transformation of the traditional financial sector, of payments, of global securities markets. I can think about developing countries, a transformation in China, Kenya, India. I can think about an explosion of new sorts of startups, which are very exciting and receive lots of press. And I can also think about this role of big tech. And I think one thing that has been very exciting to see in the context of both the US and also China, where big tech has become the most prevalent, uh, and also where both where big tech firms have been growing the most in the context of financial services, comes in the context of, in particular, small and medium-sized enterprises. So if we think from a standpoint of financial development, if we think from the standpoint of the wider economic and social developments, one of the holy grails uh, of, if you will, development research and the like has been in the context of how can we get sufficient financial resources to support small and medium-sized enterprises, not only in developing countries, but really in any economy. And of course, this is because in just about any economy, small and medium-sized enterprises should provide a large percentage, if not the majority, uh, of growth and employment. And so to the extent that we are able to make sure that these sorts of new enterprises have access to financial services, this plays a very important role in supporting wider development as well as potentially beneficial innovation. Now, this has been an area where over a very long period of time, we've been trying to make progress. And we've tried lots and lots of different things and happy to talk about that. But one of the biggest ideas has always been that we wanted essentially um, cash flow based financing of small and medium sized enterprises. In other words, one of the problems with SMEs is they don't necessarily have collateral, they don't necessarily have financial histories, but if you look at their cash flow, you may be able to provide a justification in the context of providing financial support. The problem is that from the standpoint of a financial institution, it's just as expensive to do cash flow analysis of a small enterprise as it is to do of a big enterprise and considerably less profitable. So this has always been a very difficult thing to do. What we've seen emerge is some very exciting new developments, particularly if I think of Amazon in the US or Ant Financial in China, around using their platform-based 
businesses and the sources of data that they have to do cash flow analysis to provide loans to small and medium-sized enterprises that are supporting the development of those enterprises and the wider economy. So I think to the extent where Amazon and Ant have both emerged as I believe the second largest small business lenders in their respective jurisdictions. And studies are suggesting that this is not diversion from the traditional banking sector, but in many cases this is new lending. And that is potentially very important. Um, can I just ask you, Professor, um, so it seems there is a lot on the lending side. and. I suppose SME lending is key because it contributes to like economic growth, mm -hmm. and there's also a lot on on payments. Um, but should we be looking beyond lending and payment? Uh, um, societies, sustainable societies, are based on savings accumulation, mm -hmm. capital accumulation. Will anything that the big tech do contribute to? capital development. Uh... Yeah, I, I think this is potentially a, a very exciting area. You know, if I think about uh, the last decade, it was really a decade that was characterized by two big themes, uh, the global financial crisis and technology and the interaction of the two really is at the basis of this discussion we're having now. If I think about the decade ahead of us, I think the, the big themes are really going to be technology once again, but it's interaction with sustainability, particularly around the UN Sustainable Development Goals uh, and in the context of a conflict. Uh, between globalization and fragmentation. So if I am thinking about the role of uh, technology in financial inclusion and the wider economy, I think you're exactly right. We really want the technology to be bringing people into the financial system. Uh, that's the idea of financial inclusion. Financial inclusion is not about just getting someone a bank account or a mobile money account. It is about improving their lives through giving them access to financial services, which empowers them to pursue their own interests, to pursue things which help the wider society, economy, etc. But also financial inclusion is about increasing savings and investment. It's about bringing new money into the system. And I think what we've seen in the context particularly of the experiences of Asia, but also of the small numbers of countries which have successfully passed from low income to middle income or high income, is a reliance not so much on external investment and lending, but really on internal saving systems. And so to the extent that we can use technology to increase internal savings rates, which can then be directed or uh, provided the channels to invest in opportunities which support sustainable development, then this is tech making a real difference not only to individuals but to the wider society. And the key here is that in the context of technology, if we put in place certain forms of infrastructure, that should reduce the costs of customer acquisition, which makes a much wider range of customers potentially attractive from an economic standpoint and brings them into not only savings vehicles, but in particular investment vehicles, which expand to a much wider portion of the society, giving benefits to the individuals in terms of their own savings and retirement protection, but also providing resources for the wider development of society. So we are seeing big techs, and probably Ant in China is the best example of this, where it moved from payments to savings to wider forms of investment, most recently partnering with Vanguard. Uh, offering an increasing range of basically passive investment funds which allow uh, individuals on the basis of automated advice systems to develop asset allocation models which then support their own interests but also increasing See, investments Glenn, in the Glenn economy. Is, Glenn is itching to ask a yeah. question, I think. Is it, <laughs> right, and, and to build on you know this idea of bringing everybody you know into 
the savings and investment world, you know, to uh, continue to develop the economies. I mean, do you see potential for things like, you know, ordinary, very small investors investing in infrastructure projects, um, which are a huge need uh, in developing countries around the world? Um, uh, fractional ownership of land, you know, fractional ownership mm. of the country's natural resources. Would you see the technological advancements making that more democratic, more, more participatory, more shared amongst uh, the populations? Yeah, you know, I think there are two things in there. One is about the idea of bringing more money into investment objectives like the SDGs, um, infrastructure, etc. And one way to do that is to allow or to build rails, infrastructure frameworks that make it less expensive, easier for individuals to come in. So one of the, the most interesting examples in the context of Kenya, uh, building on the existing M-Pesa mobile phone system to begin allowing people to invest directly into government bonds. That allows individuals with a small investment to provide essentially financial resources to the government which can be used in the context of infrastructure, education, human capital development, and the like. Likewise, we've seen a very exciting blockchain-based bond from the World Bank uh, which provides a potential example of how institutions of any form could seek to raise money from much smaller amounts of investment from individuals potentially uh, all over the world. So, and I think another aspect where we're seeing this is uh, in the context of pooling of risks. So, you know, um, it may not be that you're necessarily having individuals invest in individual infrastructure projects, but to the extent that uh, through building a sufficient pool of domestic investment funds in the capital markets through pension systems, through insurance companies, what you do is you then justify the creation, the development of pooled schemes, sort of an infrastructure investment fund, which could be domestic or it could be regional, uh, but then which benefits from that pool of capital, which you have enabled through the use of technology. So, so if I ask you, um, I mean, we're all optimistic about where we mm. are kind of heading. So if I ask, you know, are there any kind of structural issues or societal attitudes that may hinder or impair how we advance with some of this technology? Um, any thoughts as to on that? You know, in some ways, it may be, you may have some, some societal issues, but I probably would, would focus more on the sort of digital divide issues, mm -hmm. but also from the standpoint of some of the risks that these sorts of things may present. And of course, if we're thinking about the benefits of these sort of technologies, one key is that people actually have access. And so I think increasingly, we're going to be thinking about how can we support the development, the expansion of the availability of mobile phones through as much as the population as possible. And certainly lots of research looking at the basic benefit of just having a mobile phone in terms of individual development and life outcomes. But when we combine the power of a mobile phone with other forms of infrastructure, in particular digital ID systems, electronic payment system structures, that then provides much greater potential from the standpoint of the financial sector and also wider sustainable development. But also, and it's a big issue in the context of thinking about the role of tech in our societies. The more digitized things become, the more ubiquitous the tech becomes, the larger the platforms become, the bigger the risks become from the standpoint of cybersecurity, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, questions about how government is using technology or the private sector uh, is using technology. And of course, questions about um, dominance, oligopoly, monopolies, which may reduce transaction costs in the short term, but may have negative social consequences in the longer term. 
Uh, you have a question, Len, or yeah, um, kind of on the same yes, under yeah. on the same lines. Um, one of the biggest obstacles to uh, the smooth running of the global economy and, and particularly, you know, for the lower income segments of society, but also, you know, for corporations and uh, uh, others is the problem of cross-border payments. And, you know, if we're talking about big tech and we're bringing big tech into the picture with cross-border payments, I mean, big tech's by their very nature operate cross-border. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have regulators in each and every country. And how can the regulators in each country adequately supervise these big techs uh, for financial stability, consumer protection, AML, CFT? Shouldn't there be some kind of cross-border cooperation or passporting? Um, it seems to me to be very inefficient, you know, to have 192 countries around the world, each developing their own uh, system for regulating the uh, cross-border activities of some of these gigantic firms. Yeah, I think the really sort of three uh, big ideas in there. The first is really the the role of of big tech, and I think. Last year, we really had a seminal event, uh, and that was Facebook's proposal for Libra. In some ways, all of these discussions uh, in global finance and big tech, you can divide them before and after Libra. After Libra, everything is different. Uh, and we've seen that in the context of the Libra proposal, that basically the technology is there for a private sector company to develop a combination of a global monetary instrument, a global electronic payment system, and a global digital ID system. That combination provides the potential basis to interlink monetary, financial, and any sorts of interactions all across the world. And in some ways, from an efficiency standpoint, this would be sort of the ultimate ideal. Uh, and so that is very interesting, but it brings with it all sorts of issues from the standpoint of individual countries, individual economies, about the role of a private company in doing this, or about the role of that private company vis-a-vis uh, -vis domestic currencies, central banks, regulatory frameworks, and the like. And I think what that highlighted very much is that we're now in a world where big tech can move things very, very quickly on the data side, uh, on the financial services side. And yes, this means to the extent that we are going to continue to have globalized markets in the same way that we've had decades of working in the context of cross-border financial sector cooperation, we're now going to need to focus in on big tech. And in some ways, coming from the financial sector, to the extent that big tech is moving into financial sector issues, we already have the frameworks there. But where the frameworks don't exist is when big tech is operating outside of the financial services sector. And in many ways, we are starting to see on a domestic and regional basis fragmented approaches, differential domestic approaches to data regulation uh, because we haven't had the same effectiveness in context of data cooperation as we've had in the context of cross-border financial cooperation. So would you say that within this context, um, uh, financial sector regulators um, with the entry of big tech they will have to perhaps work also closely with data regulators, uh, regulators who are responsible for competition, antitrust, etc. Is it something that's on your mind? Yeah, these, these are big issues. And I think you highlighted what I think is the sort of big interaction. And that's between financial regulation, data regulation, and competition antitrust regulation. 
the first two are already starting to happen. In other words, because financial services is already one of the world's most digitized industries, that means we're already dealing with data. And to the extent that an ever-increasing number of countries have frameworks dealing with data rules, when you're dealing with finance, you have to deal with both the financial regulation as well as the data regulation side. And of course, if I wanted to identify the single biggest systemic risk at the moment in financial services, I would point to cybersecurity. And that is at your intersection of financial regulation and data regulation. So I think it's absolutely essential that not only regulators on both sides increasingly interact, but the financial sector is increasingly interacting. And basically, data regulation has become a new pillar of financial services compliance, along with things like AML, regulation, corrupt practices, and the like. But the one that is starting to emerge and is going to be the most difficult in many ways are these questions around competition and antitrust. In other words, how are we going to deal with the emergence uh, of these big techs? And in many ways, if we think of a platform industry, basically a platform industry is one that benefits from network effects. Network effects are basically turbocharged economies of scope and scale. And what that means is there's a natural tendency towards winner-takes-all outcomes, monopolies or oligopolies. And the corollary of winner-takes-all is everyone else loses. And what that means is from the standpoint of the wider society, we're to the point where we need to be thinking very carefully about what sorts of outcomes are already happening in the US or China and whether that's the direction that we really want. Yeah, going along those lines, uh, Doug, when you talk about competition and natural monopoly and the network effects and so forth, um, it, it called to mind you know, this new philosophy in the United States. Um, I remember studying antitrust law 35 years ago as a graduate student, and there it was all about market share and, yes. uh, and, and predatory pricing yes. and things like that. But now the discussion seems to focus more on consumer welfare. And so, you know, what if Amazon ran, you know, the entire payment system in the United States, you know, just using them as an example, yeah. if they did it very, very efficiently, they would be a monopoly, but you could see maybe consumer welfare as having improved by having this one gigantic efficient firm doing it, you know, rather than, you know, a bunch of smaller firms, you know, who might, uh, you know, not do it so efficiently or have problems and interoperating and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And this has been a real, is right now, a challenge in the context of thinking about competition and antitrust. In some ways, it's a little bit easier if we think of, say, Amazon running the, the US payment system, because of course, running the payment system is going to be from a financial sector standpoint, uh, a systemically important infrastructure activity. So it's going to draw a pretty heavy amount of regulation from that standpoint, which may mean naturally Amazon actually has an incentive to separate that line of its business from some of the others. Uh, it also may well mean that we have to think about certain forms of platform industries, not only from the financial stability standpoint, systemically important infrastructure, but we may need to think of them from the public utility context. Yeah. And so if we're thinking about something from the standpoint of a public utility, we're thinking about wider social concerns in that everyone has an interest in it functioning properly, um, which may mean that some of those balance against the pure efficiency. Okay. So, um... <laughs> When, when I think about the big tech and these platforms, mm -hmm. um, my biggest concern is what happens if they don't work? What are the implications? I mean, payments is like the plumbing to, to an economy. Exactly. So how do we address this risk of this, this issue of keeping them 
operate in resiliency. Yeah, and I think this is is exactly right. Uh, and certainly in the financial sector, we have a, a long history of focusing on identifying potential areas of systemic risk, like the payment system, which has long been a, a big focus of regulators in the context of working with the private sector to develop resilient systems. Because after all, payments are the sort of blood flow in economy. If they stop, the whole economy stops. So at least in the context of payments, we probably have a framework that's a starting point. But we're starting to see the emergence of some other areas. And I think one where there's an increasing interest is in the context of cloud services. Mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, cloud services are not necessarily like payments where it's mainly a sort of financial services function, but we see cloud playing an increasing role not only in financial services, but in an increasing range of industries around the world. So, you know, if we're thinking about those cloud services and we think about the fact that it is a pretty concentrated industry at the moment. Mm -hmm. And if we think about the consequences of those cloud services ceasing to be available from a general economic standpoint, that takes us into questions about whether or not there are utility elements. Now, from a financial sector standpoint, it's interesting because if we think about the financial sector, Often we haven't been that concerned with cloud because if we think of the big financial institutions around the world, they haven't moved in big scale into cloud. They're all using it, but very few have moved really large portions of their operations. But if we look at smaller firms, newer firms, basically any financial services firm in a developed market which has entered into finance in the past 10 years is cloud native. Cloud yeah. And what that means is from the standpoint of the existence of that entire firm, we have to think about it. And of course, that means identifying that there are issues and then thinking about ways that they can be resolved in such a way that they minimize the risks but also have minimum impact on the positive benefits. Because after all, cloud does bring with it huge efficiency benefits. It brings with it for most firms, big security benefits, and it often brings big data protection benefits. So it's a real balance in terms of the risks versus the positive aspects. Mm -hmm. That brings to mind uh, something that I've been thinking about uh, for a long time. and. You know that one of the buzzwords as we're talking about fintech and financial services and how to regulate is that we should have activity-based supervision mm -hmm. rather than entity-based supervision. In other words, our act, our, we sh as regulators, we should supervise a, a particular activity regard in the same way, uh, regardless of who's doing it. Um, but at the same time, it's entities that fail, you know, not activities. So does this imply that the regulatory authorities should devote time and resources to monitoring the overall condition and performance of Amazon, Google, Facebook, and all, all of these uh, would, for example, Banco Central and Filipinas in Manila, would. Should, should they be analyzing the overall condition and performance of Google or if they become big in, in offering financial services or can we simply look at their at, at how they carry out the activities? I, I, and a, a related question mm. to that would be uh, it's would those firms, the Google, the Amazon, um, give the regulators access to what they need to look mm, at mm. to determine their performance, their risk, yeah, and what skill sets would the regulators need as well. Yeah, I think there are some very big questions there, and certainly, if I think of you know your your first question there, Mark, uh, in terms of regulators dealing with big tech, the the Chinese context of say. The, the People's Bank of China dealing with the big tech firms in China has been a, a challenge in some cases. And so it's certainly one of the, the reasons, in my view, why China is looking at uh, a central bank digital currency uh, is it provides a, a greater scope from the standpoint of uh, the central bank for 
control monitoring, etc. So I think that's it's a big issue because these are not the traditional financial sector participants. And I think on your second question in terms of human capital resources, this is one of the big issues for regulators going forward is that we're now in a world where the technology is there to do many things, but we have to think about whether or not it's necessarily a good idea. And what that means is regulators around the world are having to look outside of their comfort zone. They're having to look at lots of new technologies, lots of new firms, and think about what's going on. For me, this is very exciting. I love new things. I love learning about new things. And that's what has always made the financial sector, for me, so interesting. But for regulators who perhaps some of them have gotten very comfortable focusing on narrow areas, it's going to be a challenge. And I think this is something that everyone needs to be aware of in a world where platform effects, tech effects, allow things to move from very small to very big in a very short amount of time, we have to be watching a much greater range of things. And what this requires is not only a greater openness from regulators, but also a greater use of technology from regulators themselves, <clears throat> what we characterize as reg tech, of uh, which soup tech is one form. Now, back to the big question um, from Glenn, and that is about regulatory objectives. And this is something that we've been looking at for a, a long, long time. How do you design a, a regulatory system? Should it be a sort of sectoral-based structure where you regulate the banking sector, the insurance sector, the security sector, with a separate regulator for each one? Should it be a sort of institutional or a functional approach where you look at financial institutions uh, versus sort of financial activities? Um, should you have a single regulator where everything is combined in, in one place? Or should you have some other structure, something like the Twin Peak structure, where you have one regulator that looks at uh, sort of uh, safety and soundness of individual financial institutions, perhaps financial stability in conjunction with a central bank, and a separate sort of market conduct regulator. And for me, what this is all about is realizing that when we think about financial services, when we think about financial regulation, we have multiple objectives. One objective is very much uh, financial stability. And we can think about financial stability from both the macro standpoint as well as the micro standpoint. Another is very much uh, consumer protection, investor protection. A third is really around market integrity. This is criminal use of the financial system. And a fourth is around wider sorts of developmental interests, uh, the performance of the economy, financial inclusion, the sustainable development goals, etc. And I think when we're talking about this sort uh, of question between activity-based and entity-based, for me, the answer is really both. Because from a macro and a micro prudential standpoint, particularly from a micro prudential standpoint, you need to have an entity-based approach because you're often focusing on financial stability issues around those entities. But at the same time, from a consumer protection standpoint, you're probably looking at a much more activities-based approach. Anyone who enters into this business needs to be regulated in the same way because of those interests of market integrity, consumer protection, and also perhaps market development. But from a financial stability standpoint, particularly institutional safety and soundness, you want to be concerned with institutions when they are offering a sufficient amount of financial services that they pose a risk or their interconnections are of such a level. So that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is going to be subject to the same level uh, of entity-based approach as you're going to get from the activity standpoint. But you need these two together, particularly to think about the macroprudential issues where you think across the linkages between the institutions, the activities, and the wider portion of the economy. Now, kind of what this then comes out about is how do you design these systems? And for me, I don't think that our traditional sectoral-based systems perform very well anymore. In other words, I don't think 
if you have a banking regulator, a securities regulator, an insurance regulator, I tend to think that the problem here is that it's very difficult to classify activities across and you're very subject to the potential for regulatory arbitrage because you may have different regulatory approaches for different institutions, different activities which are actually functionally similar. Let me, let me yeah. follow up on that because that I think is, is, is also another of your excellent points. Um, when I think of uh, some of these big tech firms, yeah. and, and, and I'm just, uh, just going to throw Amazon out mm. as an example, they're operating in different economic sectors yeah. and they're operating on different sides of the market. So from that perspective, uh, if you are saying that sectoral approach to regulation is it's 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 really true mm. um, so given these big tech firms are cross market cross markets cross sectors then we have to truly think about regulation um, uh, not just on an activity base but how do we see that big picture yeah i think you've got you know we've had a long discussion about whether or not to allow financial services activities to be conducted by non-financial firms and very different approaches that have been taken in the US and other jurisdictions. Uh, and I think it's really interesting with these big techs because that's a question. Uh, if they're going to be conducting financial activities, um, one, is it a good idea to allow them? And that comes to some of these network effects. It may or may not. But also, if it is, how then are we going to treat them? In other words, are we going to have a sort of separate subsidiary requirement that deals with the financial services, which is then subject to regulation. But I think the key from the standpoint of the overall financial sector, both from a stability side as well as from the standpoint of the other objectives, is that if a tech firm is entering into financial services, we need to treat them the same as other financial services so that you don't end up with regulatory arbitrage or an uneven playing field between different types of firms just because of their background. Now we're getting to the point of the conversation where we want you to think ahead. Uh, we want you to prognosticate a bit. Um, if we're sitting in the same room, let's say five years mm. from now, 10 years from now, what kinds of fintech or big tech innovations would we see as having transformed financial services to the greatest extent or for the greatest good? Um, you know, are we thinking of digital assets based on blockchain technology, crypto assets, stable coins and the like, or are we thinking of artificial intelligence, data analytics, that sort of thing. If you could sort of paint a picture for, my for 11, us. Yeah. For my 11-year-old daughter, because, <laughs> exactly. you know. They're going to be living in this world <laughs> yeah. exactly. after we've ridden off into the, into the sunset. digital yeah. sunset. Exactly, yeah. my 7-year-old daughter, the same. Yeah, no, this is, uh, as I mentioned, I think this decade... And you, you never know what sorts of black swan events are going to arise in any given decade. But if you're thinking about on the basis of current trends, uh, those big issues of sort of uh, the interaction between globalization and fragmentation that we were talking about in the data context, this issue of continuing development of, of technology and the fact that in many cases the technology is no longer the limiting factor but the policy choices are. And third, this overall question of sustainability and the role that the financial sector plays both from a positive standpoint as well as reducing the possibilities of negative outcomes from things like climate change, biodiversity loss, and the like. So, you know, for me, if I think forward in 10 years, from a positive standpoint, what I would like to see and what I would hope to see is that an increasing range of countries have learned from the lessons of how to build infrastructure around digital IDs, electronic payment systems, digital provision of government services to bring an increasing range of the population 
into the financial system, financial inclusion, and that the financial resources that are coming from that are improving not only the lives of those individuals, but are also providing financial resources to support the wider development of economies and achievement of the SDGs as well as economic transformation. That, if you will, from the standpoint of uh, my optimistic hat. That's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see at the end of this decade uh, most of those 1.7 billion people in the financial system, but not just in the financial system, but having a financial system that actually supports their own lives, make their lives better, and improves wider societal outcomes. But at the same time, I can think about a number of very potentially dystopian outcomes uh, where you can continue to have uh, continuing concentration in the context of uh, big tech in finance uh, from the standpoint of greater inequalities, uh, from the standpoint uh, of replacement of jobs via automation so that one potentially has uh, a situation that looks in 10 years potentially very different uh, and very unattractive. And to some extent, how this works out is a bit about some of the underlying technology. So we mentioned AI, and we can think about very positive aspects of AI, but we can also think about some of the very negative results that could come out. And from my standpoint, a subject of a paper where we're just wrapping up, is how we can make sure that human involvement in the financial sector tries to reduce the likelihood from AI producing some of these wider dystopian outcomes. And I think from the standpoint of societies, much of the next 10 years has to be about thinking about how we want to approach tech. What sorts of societies <coughs> do we want to have and what sorts of decisions do we need to take from the standpoint about rules of data ownership, data control, data protection in order to re uh, result more likely in the sort of society we would like to have as opposed to the sort of society that none of us want to have? One of these dystopian outcomes, you know, that I I'm kind of fearful of, but at the same time wondering if it's even plausible, is that, you know, in a couple of decades from now, there won't be any privacy. Mm -hmm. You know, all of our data will be available for everyone. Um, our conversations will be, nothing will be private. There won't be any trade secrets anymore because everybody can figure out what everybody else's corporate strategy is and so forth. Are, are, are you concerned that, that we might move into such an age where there won't be any privacy anymore? Yeah, I think this is, is a real concern. Um, I guess the good news is that many societies are increasingly thinking about this. And certainly some, we can think about the EU, trying to build frameworks to make it less likely that that sort of outcome happens. We can think of um, both the US and China having similar discussions. Uh, but I think what we do have to realize is that um, digitization brings with it both the potential positive benefits, but it also brings with it very strongly the potential for abuse and government control. And it's something that societies are going to have to think about what sort of balance they're most comfortable with. And I think one of the challenges from this idea of globalization, fragmentation, the role of technology and sustainability is going to be that we may have very different approaches across different societies. And that may be one of our sources of fragmentation going forward, not only in finance, but in data and the global economy more widely. Yeah. I think we're we're just about at the end um, of this very enlightening and engaging conversation, Professor. Um, I just wonder if we could close with um, 
something to focus on our CISN members. Mm. We have 19 central banks and monetary authorities as members, and we have uh, some observers and associates as well. So as we think about the entrance of these big tech firm in the financial sector space, uh, what would be your three key recommendation in terms of how our members should prepare for these firms. I'm assuming an approach to regulation is going to be one of those. Mm. Yeah, I I think um, the first is simply increasing um, discussion and awareness around the issues. One of the biggest things for central banks is to become aware of of what is happening, to understand how these businesses are operating, and the fact that uh, you can't avoid their impact. The technological changes have already happened, and you can't pretend that they, they, they will go away so easily. The second, then, is monitoring. Systems of gathering information about not only individual firms, but much more widely so that central banks are aware of what's going on in the economy. Because after all, things can move very, very quickly. And if you're not aware, then you can have potentially very bad outcomes very quickly. And then the third is only on the basis of those, a sort of greater understanding, monitoring of what goes on, then thinking about appropriate regulatory approaches. Because to come up with an appropriate regulatory approach, You need to be able to think about, obviously, not only what benefits can come out, but all the things that could go wrong. And you need to be able to think about how do we balance the things that could go wrong against the potential benefits. And that's then how you devise your regulatory approaches. So for me, that would be the three. The first, talking to one another, greater awareness. The second would be information gathering monitoring of what's going on globally as well as in their own economies, and then on the basis of that, seeking to identify not just the positives, but the negatives, which can then support appropriate decisions on regulatory approaches. Um, we've been speaking with Professor Douglas Arner again. Uh, he's the Carey Holdings Professor in Law and co-founder of the Asian Institute of International Financial Law, the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. We've had a very, very interesting discussion with him, uh, which will inform our CSEN programs as we go forward into uh, this new year, uh, in this new decade. Uh, so I'd like to thank Professor Arner. I'd like to thank Uh, my colleague Mark McKenzie for his questions and his organization and we'd also like to thank uh, the listeners uh, of our CSEN podcast um, where uh, we have uh, noticed that people are listening from all over the world uh, not only in the Asia Pacific region and uh, we're glad and we uh, hope that you'll continue uh, to pay attention to our uh, podcasts as time goes on. So uh, thank you all a lot for listening and um, uh, tune in again for our next podcast. Thank you. Thanks, thank Glenn. You very much. Thank Thanks, you very Mark. Much. Thank you very much.